1: Arches and halos. Professional brow grooming. Be bold. Be you. Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you peace of mind, security. Because if it's connected, it's protected. Yeah, even your robot vacuum. Can your internet do that? Learn more at xfinity.com/slash xfi.
2: Welcome to stuff mom never told you from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen and I'm Caroline. And Caroline, I was traveling not too long ago and I was sitting in the airport reading a book called Breasts A Natural and Unnatural History. And I'm not going to lie to you, I got a couple of sort of awkward looks mm-hmm. from guys who were sitting next to me and it made me more aware of oh I'm I'm reading this book that says breast in large font on the cover okay and I, I didn't care I was like if anyone wants to ask me about this boob book no problem and I got on the plane and started reading breasts and it was obviously very close quarters and there's a woman sitting next to me also reading and I would noticed she had kind of looked over at my book a little bit, and I was like, oh, she's probably thinking about how oh, I'm reading breasts. And then I looked over at her book and she was reading Fifty Shades of Grey. Ah, And I, and, and from that moment on, once we kind of exchanged glances, we were like, <laughs> cool, we're totally fine. Neither of us is on an e-reader. We're owning it. <laughs> Although I will say that my book, Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History, by Florence Williams, far more educational than Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> I'm sure some people would disagree with yeah. <laughs> uh, This This is true. Uh, but yeah, I, I read Breasts, and it was such a great read that I reached out to the author, Florence Williams, to see if she could chat about it, because is there a better topic for Stuff Mom Never Told You than Breasts? I, I think it's, it's tailor-made. It is tailor-made. We've talked about bras before and cleavage before, but Florence really dug into the science and evolution of breasts and also the intersection of breasts and the environment. Yeah. The New York Times actually
3: likened her book to Rachel Carson's 1962 Silent Spring, uh, which really detailed the impact of industrial chemicals on animals and the environment. She takes that kind of scientific viewpoint and applies it to our breasts, talking about how the fatty tissue that sits atop our chests is like a magnet for chemicals and pollutants.
2: Yeah, and while a lot of the environmental interactions that she talks about in the book and that we also talked about in the interview are pretty unsettling because... It's all this stuff happening, and it's affecting our breasts and getting passed out uh, via breast milk to babies and then all of those generational effects that take place. Um, but she also touches on the evolution of breasts, the scientific study of breasts, which is often kind of brushed aside just because of how sexualized mm-hmm. they are, and almost sexualized in kind of a comical way. Um, and, and she also t- touches on the horrifying history of implants as Uh, well because not only are all of these environmental threats going on but we're also paying money to have people tinker with our breasts and the size of them. Uh, so I was really happy to get Florence on the phone. Uh, breasts, a natural and unnatural history, won the 2013 L.A. Times Book Prize for Science and Technology, and it was named the 2012 New York Times Notable Book. So you should definitely check it out, and huge thanks to Florence for talking with us. Yeah, so let's hear what she had to say. What got you interested... In
4: writing breasts. It all started when I was nursing my daughter, uh, and I found out that there were some toxic chemicals showing up in breast milk. So I thought it would be interesting to have my own breast milk tested, um, to find out what was in there and then, you know, write an article about that and kind of what it meant for my health and for my daughter's health. So, so, so we shipped off a file of breast milk to a lab in Germany. And it came back positive for flame retardants um, and also uh, trace amounts of pesticides. Um, so, so that really launched me into this bigger question of how else modern life is changing breaths mm-hmm. and what it means.
2: Um, well, what was what was one of the most surprising things that you learned with all of the research that you did for the book?
4: Well, it was just fun to learn about how kind of amazingly complex breasts are. You know, we tend to, in our society, of course, think of them in one way, and that's, um, you know, a sexualized way. And so I learned these amazing things about how they worked. Um, I learned that, for example, when you're nursing, your breasts are incredibly smart. And they actually know when your baby is, for example, ill or suffering from an infection. Um, and then your breast milk kind of adjusts its ingredients accordingly. For example, it will put more antibodies in the breast milk. And it looks like from primate studies that your, your breasts even somehow know if you're nursing a male or a female infant. Uh, and it, it changes um, also the composition of the fats and the proteins based on that. And then I also learned that actually breasts are very unique in the animal kingdom. You know, I kind of assumed that, well, all mammals have mammary glands, so there must be some other mammals out there you know, that have mammary glands that sort of look like ours. But it turns out that the human breast is actually incredibly unique. In the animal kingdom and that, um, no other primate actually has these sort of permanently enlarged mounds, you know, on their chest like we do. We have them starting in puberty and then we essentially have breasts our entire lives. And with other primates, they really only have, you know, sort of what we would call breasts while they're lactating Mm -hmm. and then they recede again. So I thought that was kind of interesting to know, in fact, how unusual breasts are. For example, our breasts are getting bigger in modern life which was interesting to me and something unexpected and also of course that they are showing up earlier now in younger and younger girls so
2: the the big question then i mean why you're talking about how unique they are to humans why do we have them can you talk a little bit about
4: that well, yes, I can, and in fact, um it's one of those kind of perennial biology questions because a lot of people are interested in breasts, and a lot of evolutionary biologists have been asking this question for a while. You know, how did we get so lucky why why do we have breasts and sort of no one else. And so there's there's actually a big debate about it, and for a long time, a lot of the sort of dominant theory in evolutionary biology has been that breasts must have evolved as a sexual signal for men, and that they must be a sexually selected trait, so that you know we have them because men are interested in them essentially, and they must be conveying some kind of you know important information to men. But then in the 80s and 90s, there were more kind of feminists in the field of anthropology and some of them started questioning these theories and saying, well, you know, why why should we assume that these breasts exist for men? You know, couldn't there be some other reasons that breasts exist? For example, to help the woman survive or to help her infant survive. You know, is there something about, about breasts that, um, you know, enabled their fitness? So then it would be a more naturally selected trait and not a sexually selected trait. Um, and so they have some alternative theories. Mostly having to do with the fact that humans, human females and human infants, need a greater percentage of body fat. In order to survive Um, and in fact breasts are a pretty good place to store body fat (laughs) and so because our breasts also have estrogen receptors estrogen tells fat to be deposited in in our breasts as well and so it could be that it's a sort of combination of estrogen being in our breasts and and the fat showing up there that that breasts are in, in a way kind of accidents of of just being human
2: now it's interesting. You talk about um, Evo Bio, and obviously evolutionary biologists have, have spent a lot of time researching breasts. But it seems like outside of that area, and, and we also hear a lot about breast cancer research, of course. But one thing that you touched on a little bit on the book in the book is how research on the function of breasts almost is not doesn't seem to be taken as seriously in the scientific realm? Or was I just reading into that a little bit?
4: No, I think you're right. I I think in in many ways, breasts are a kind of orphan of science. Um, I think because we sexualize them so much, it's harder to take them seriously. Um, as an organ, and in fact, a lot of scientists told me that they have trouble getting funding to research breast anatomy, or they have trouble, um, you know, just being taken seriously studying things like breast milk um, because there's a lot of funding in it, and, and it's also um, they they feel that that breasts are just not taken seriously. And in fact, it's true that breasts are the only organ in our body that don't have a medical specialty. So if you think about it, you know, our other organs are kidneys, <laughs> our livers, you know, we they, they have this, you know, whole sort of specialty of medicine revolving around them. And we don't. In fact, when a woman gets breast cancer, you know, she goes to see a surgeon or she might see her gynecologist um, or she might see an endocrinologist. Um, but these aren't specialties that are necessarily dedicated to the breast. And so because of that, we actually have a really limited understanding of how breasts work. We don't know, for example, why we get breast cancer. And breast cancer is such a complicated disease. It's actually the number one cancer killer of women globally. And in our country, in the United States, it's the number one killer of women in middle age. And so it's sort of amazing that So we haven't spent more time trying to figure out how breast cancers start. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, breast milk. And I learned that that we actually know very little about breast milk, even though it's this perfect food for humans. You know, we spend more money and more resources, more scientific energy studying red wine (laughs) than we do studying breast milk. So I think that's that's kind of telling and interesting and, and sort of sad, really, you know, in terms of women's health.
2: Well, and it seems like... When you're talking about all of the, the different medical specialties and how there isn't one for breasts, the first thing that popped into my mind was, well, we do have plastic surgeons. Is that the closest that we have to breast experts of sorts? Um, and in the book, you talk about the history of implants um, and really all of the horrific things that we have put into women's breasts over the years. Um, could you talk a little bit about why? Or how implants were invented and especially this, uh, this medical invention of micromastia or having small breasts.
4: Yeah, sure. You know, for a long time, women were more concerned with having breasts that were too large. And so the earliest breast surgeries were were surgeries that tried to reduce the size of breasts because large breasts really got in the way, you know, of for example, you know, farm work <laughs> or field work for for a lot of women. And so so those are the first surgeries. And then um, it was actually the women on the stage um, who who sang or were actresses who felt that it might be um sure sort of beneficial to them to have larger breasts. And so the first breast augmentation was performed on an actress in Germany. Um, And I think you had the date. I think it was about 18,
2: in the 1880s or 1890s. 1895
4: was the date that you cited. There you go. Thanks. You had good notes. Um, 1895 was the first surgery to try to enlarge a woman's breast, and in that case, a surgeon um, took some fat from her backside and put it in her breasts, and it, it actually didn't work very well because the fat sort of dissipated and migrated around and basically dissolved. And so, so, so this is that failure. There have been a 100 years of failures of trying to make women's breasts larger. And the, the history is just sort of this sorry history of, um, of environmental and health catastrophe sort of visited upon women in the name of um, medical experimentation. Doctors tried to augment women's breasts with um, ox cartilage, with wood chips, uh, with the glass balls, in the 19 uh 1950s and early 1960s they tried to use these new plastics like even plastic sponges um, very much like a kitchen sponge <laughs> and in many cases these resulted in horrible infections um, in hardening of uh of the tissue and uh it, it, it never seemed to work very well and then uh in 19 19- 62, a surgeon in Houston, Texas had the idea of using silicone which had been a material um, invented for use in World War II and the silicone was um, soft and it was cleaner and um, so it, it was possible to use this as an augmentation material that, that wouldn't necessarily cause an instant infection and it also tended to stay in place so the, the first surgery was actually performed on a dog named Esmeralda and she did not like her implants i anymore. can imagine she ended up she ended up chewing them out <laughs> she did not understand the need for this new endowment um and then of course there was uh it was performed on a woman and the first woman, uh it, this operation was in nineteen sixty-two and she's actually still alive. So I interviewed her for my book, which was really a lot of fun. She's in her eighties and she's she's kinda of proud, you know, of this place in history. <laughs> and she jokes that when she dies she's going to dedicate her breast to science.
1: <laughs> this episode is brought to you by China. The China brand provides premium disposable tableware to celebrate moments of togetherness.
0: Yes, and right now that is more important than ever, especially when we're all apart. So recently I had a group and we had a a socially distanced barbecue where the host drew out circles and chalk that were six feet apart. And everyone showed up with their own chairs and beverages. And it was really convenient to have disposable products. And we, we just had a, a lovely conversation. Um, it was really fun.
1: Yeah, and I'm, with the disposable products, I know that the China brand provides durable and trusted products, which I have used before that let you enjoy every moment of the get-togethers in traditional or now not. This year is the 25th anniversary of Catan.
0: Get Catan at CatanShop.com slash mom. Listeners of the podcast get 10% off the original base game Catan by using the promo code MOM at checkout. Offer not good on other Catan titles or merchandise.
2: Um, I mean, that's so fascinating, though, that we've been so persistent, uh, you know, for almost a century of trying to artificially augment women's breasts. Um, but it seems like one of you know while while we've been busily trying to uh put implants into breasts there have also been environmental contaminants making their way into breast tissue um, and you talk a lot about that in the book and um, about that in endocrine disruptors um, so could you talk about some of the the most directly, uh, the, some of the chemicals that are most directly threatening to long-term breast health?
4: Yes. Um, unfortunately, breasts do seem to attract a lot of environmental contaminants and industrial pollutants. And there are a couple of reasons for this. Uh, one is that breast tissue is so fatty. It's um, you know one of the fattiest parts of our bodies. And... Many industrial chemicals, such as pesticides, are fat-loving chemicals, are sort of attracted to fat. And once they get in fatty tissue, these industrial molecules, they tend to stay there for a very long time. In the case of um, DDT, for example, and flame retardants, which I also tested for in my breast milk, um, these are substances that that last in mammalian fatty tissue for... Um, years and years and years, um, and PCBs, which are now banned um, but were an industrial um, chemical used to sort of insulate uh, electronics, they can last for decades. And so sadly, I mean, some of the chemicals that we've been sort of accumulating in our breast tissue For, you know, since we were children, we end up passing along to our children, some of the same ones end up staying there for for the decades of our reproductive lives. So um, even the chemicals that our daughters are exposed to now when they're infants may still be in their blood and in their fat uh, when they're having babies. Um, So... These are things that can last even for more than one generation uh, in our bodies. And, of course, the, the question is really, well, what are they doing there? And, uh, unfortunately, the science is very young. Um, it's only been in, in really the last 10 years or so that we've been able to sort of easily and affordably detect the presence of these chemicals. Um, and and scientists have been looking hard at animals and seeing what these substances do uh, you know, to lab animals. And it looks like some of them have the ability to affect our hormone systems. So they're what they call endocrine disruptors, and they can either mimic hormones or they can otherwise interfere with the hormonal signaling in our body. and And these hormones are really important for regulating all kinds of biological processes, you know, from metabolism um, to um, you know sex drive and parenting behavior to neurodevelopment behavior um, and you know how our brains work. For example, the flame retardants um, have been shown to um, particularly affect the thyroid system and the thyroid hormones. Um, So what what they're seeing in animals and now in some human studies is that animals with the highest number or the sort of largest number of of these molecules in their bloodstream tend to have um, sort of whacked out thyroid systems, either low thyroid or high thyroid. And the thyroid is very important, especially for infant brain development. So it also looks like um, that there are some human studies that are, that are sort of confirming some of this, too, um, that, that women who have the highest levels of these chemicals in their breast milk have um, um, infants and children with some, some prote- potentially IQ and, and brain behavior differences. So it's something that, you know, I think a lot of people are very concerned about.
2: mm mm-hmm. Well, I know you do some experimentation in the book to try to limit your exposure to chemicals. And you have to go to really extreme steps to do that. In the book, you do that for you and also um, for your daughter, including things of having to ride your bike around so that you're not coming into contact with these chemicals that are in the materials in our cars, for instance. So, I mean, knowing all that you know now, how can women protect their breasts because it seems like these environmental threats are unavoidable.
4: Yeah, you know, I think as mothers we're all, you know, wanna be cautious. I mean, we make our kids wear bicycle helmets, you know, we make them wear seat belts. We all kind of operate on a day to day level using the precautionary principle. And yet then we find out that there are all these industrial toxicants in use that have the potential to affect, you know, our children's brains and the timing of puberty for our children, which is something, you know, many of us are concerned about. Um, and yet there's so little we can do to actually control Their exposures and our exposures to these substances. So I wanted to find out, you know, if I really, if I really tried, could I affect, you know, for example, um, how many parabens or how many, um, how much BPA I had in my bloodstream? And these are really common chemicals used in um, household personal care products, for example, shampoos um, or you know, in our water bottles. Um, And so, so I tried, I tried not to eat any food that had touched plastic. I I didn't ride in my car for a few days because I didn't want to be exposed to the phthalates, which are another uh, endocrine disruptor found in the interiors of our cars at off gas. Um, And I, so I became a vegan and I I didn't use um, any smelly shampoos or moisturizers or deodorants for a few days. And I tested my blood and my daughter's blood both before and after. Um, you know, doing these experiments. I'm sorry, I tested my, my, my urine and my daughter's urine because that's where, um, these chemicals, um, sort of end up. And I was able to alter the levels in my body about 80 or 90 percent for some of these substances. We tested for five or six of them. Um, but for other substances, I could hardly budget even by living in this sort of extreme, You know, no smelly substances life. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, And and that was, it was was a really disconcerting feeling that I actually could not control those exposures. And what it tells me is that we really don't know where these exposures are coming from. Part of that is because, you know, when we go to the grocery store and we buy a food product or we buy a shampoo or a soap, um, the manufacturers are not required to label those ingredients. So we don't know if our soap has a phthalates in it or if it has triclosan, which is an endocrine-disrupting um, antibacterial substance. Uh, but if you go to Europe, for example, the, the manufacturers are required to label. So you can avoid substances more easily than you can uh, in the United States. Um, moreover... The substances are everywhere. They're sort of in, you know, it's in our homes. They might be in our roofing tiles. Um, they might be in our, you know, home electronics. Um, we just don't know. There are so many phthalates and um, there are so many products. It, it, it was overwhelming to me, and it, it made me feel sort of helpless. Mm-hmm. And it also made me feel sort of angry that, you know, our government has not, um, worked harder to study these substances for health effects and, um, has not really worked to regulate them when they do sort of appear to have some questionable, um, health properties.
2: So it seems like almost the best that we can do is remain vigilant about, you know, maintaining awareness of the ingredients of food and whatever products uh, when that information is made available to us. And beyond that, it seems like that's sort of all you can do, maybe, to, uh, to protect yourself against environmental contaminants. Because obviously we can't, you know, live in, you know, vacuums away from all of these phthalates and parabens, et cetera.
4: Well, the problem with that strategy of trying to be vigilant is that it puts this tremendous burden, you know, on the individual. And I'm a consumer to sort of figure this out. And it's just beyond us, frankly. I mean, you know, we're not, most of us are not chemists. (laughs) We're not endocrinologists. Um, And, and frankly, we know we have enough going on, right? I mean, we're busy, and we have other things to worry about. Especially, you know, if you're a mother, there are lots of other things you're worrying about too. And so, to add this to the plate, um, it just seems, um, you know, kind of impractical, and you know, frankly, just annoying. Um, and so, so I was left with feeling like this shouldn't be my problem. This should be my government's problem. And that should be the manufacturer's problem. Um, You know, really, let's not put, you know, if there's questionable, if there are questionable substances, please, let's not use them. You know, let's find safer alternatives. And there are safer alternatives for many of these ingredients. Um, And so, you know, I I feel like if if, if we want to do anything useful, it would be to sort of put more pressure on both state and federal governments to, to spend more resources testing these substances, I would like to see them tested for health effects specifically in the mammary gland, which is not done right now. Sometimes when chemicals are tested um, in a lab animal, for example, the mammary gland is just sort of thrown out. Like no one's actually looking at effects on the mammary gland. And there were some activists who told me about this. And, and it just seems kind of crazy that, you know, we're living in the in an age of increasing breast cancer. Um, it's such a strong concern among so many of us. Um, that, that, that really it would be helpful to look at sort of this target tissue rather than completely ignoring it. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like, there, you know, there's a lot we can do as sort of activists or as um, just citizens to kind of, you know, ask for testing, you know, like they do in Europe. Why can't we do that here? And, of course, there are a lot of complicated reasons for that. But, but with more consumer pressure and more citizen pressure, I think, you know, it, it's more effective than having us try to figure this all out on a case-by-case basis as we walk through the grocery store.
2: Well, um, you talk a lot in the book about being um, a a mother. You you know, you mention your children a number of times and and talk about breast milk. And uh, and this relates to the the issue with the environmental contaminants because, like you said, uh, you know, those kind of contaminants can get into breast milk, et cetera. Um, But in general, you know, there's all this information basically on how breast milk is kind of perfect (laughs) in a way. So knowing, though, that scientifically like just how good breast milk is for babies how do you think though that we as women kind of can balance that sort of scientific reality of knowing that but also the realities of being working moms perhaps or maybe even women who just have a a difficult time breastfeeding can you make some sense i guess of how to balance i don't know a, a working mom's life and then also knowing that that perhaps probably breast is best
4: yeah, sure. I, you know, I I agree with you. Breastfeeding is um, it's it's complicated <laughs> and demanding, and for for working mothers especially, um, you know, sometimes it's it's hard to figure out um, the balance of you know how to how to be home enough, how to pump, how to get enough support to do it, um, and and certainly for a lot of women, you know, it's it's, it's just too it's too much, it's too difficult, and if they you know have to work. You know, right after their baby's born, um, um, you know, it's 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 it has to be sort of up to them to figure out what's going to work best for them. And I think I think as women, we need to kind of support each other as we make these choices. Um, I, but I do think that if you want to make an argument for which is better for your baby, um, formula or breast milk, you know, the science is really emerging more strongly that that breast milk is a little bit better. Um, especially for babies who are born early, for premature babies, and um, for babies who are born outside of Western industrial societies, you know, who are um, growing up in a pathogen-rich environment where they're exposed to dirty water, for example, you know, used to make formula. For those babies... Um, breast milk is actually incredibly um, important for survival. It's a little bit harder to make the survival argument in, in the United States where babies actually grow up just fine on formula. But what we're learning more and more is that nursing is also good for the mom. And I think that's really interesting too. We know that, that by her, when she nurses, she's mobilizing the fats that she's accumulated during pregnancy. And giving them to her baby, and it actually helps her recover and sort of um, regain um, a healthy ratio of fats within her own body. So, women who breastfeed are at lower risk later on, even you know decades later on, for things like heart disease and hypertension. Um, And we also know that for the baby, you know, that there does seem to be an IQ benefit, although it's small, and um, also fewer respiratory infections and ear infections. Um, We also know, and we're learning this more and more, that breast milk confers not just nutrients to a baby, but immune system support. So there are ingredients in breast milk that aren't actually digested by the infant, but that are digested by bacteria that is helpful to the infant. You know, we all have these very complicated um, communities of microflora in our bodies. And it it turns out that those colonies are started, you know, the minute we're born. And breast milk is actually, you know, has evolved over um, millions of years in mammals um, to sort of confer this colony um, that's, that's most optimal for health, and so it looks like you know, um, baby, to breastfed also have lower risks of allergies, for example, um, and asthma, um, and it's it's just kind of cool to think about, you know, how that's all evolved to sort of optimize our health. And it's something that formula companies, of course, are falling all over themselves to try to replicate, you know, some of these, for example, oligosaccharides um, that are just unique to human breast milk and nowhere, nowhere else found on the planet. And they just have not figured out how to synthesize these products yet uh, in formula.
2: Um, well, Florence, I could ask you so many more questions all about uh, breasts. It was a, a fascinating read. Um, but just to kind of wrap everything up, um, do you think that young women, and even older women for that matter, need to learn more about their breasts or be taught more about their breasts? Um, do, we, do we need better breast education?
4: <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I really think we do. Um, for one thing, young people learn about their bodies right now from the internet and uh, you know this is different of course from when I was growing up um, and I saw somewhere a statistic that something like the average teenage boy will have seen something like 12,000 images of breasts, <laughs> you know, by the time he finishes high school. And the, the interesting thing about this is that many of the breasts that that these both boys and girls are seeing are not natural breasts. You know, they, they're either um, surgically altered breasts. Uh, you know, they're common in pornography, common in, uh, in Hollywood, or they're photoshopped, breasts. So this is also something that's really pervasive in media, um, and so so I think both boys and girls are kind of growing up with this expectation of what breasts are supposed to look like, and I think of course that does a great disservice, you know, to the sort of wonderful variety of of natural breasts that you see out there, um, and you know it tends not to be so helpful for um, girls' self esteem as they're growing up and their bodies kind of look different from an ideal. I also think that. Um, just the more we know about how breasts work and sort of how amazingly sort of complicated and miraculous they are, um, you know, the more that, that we will listen to them and, and what do you, our breasts have to tell us, you know, as they kind of get sicker and as breast cancer becomes, unfortunately, um, more common throughout the world, it's really an important um, medical challenge to sort of figure out how to try to prevent breast cancer. And it's something that I think many of us can agree we're not spending enough resources on currently.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, how can we how can we support working moms who also want to breastfeed, but obviously there's only so much time in the day?
4: I think there are a couple of ways that we can encourage and support breastfeeding. One is we can... Um, try to uh, support breastfeeding in public, (laughs) because right now, there's a great level of discomfort in our society still with breastfeeding, and you see this when women are asked to stop breastfeeding in public, or when even they're arrested for (laughs) breastfeeding in public. Um, This is, you know, every once in a while, you hear news reports of this, Um, which I think is, you know, tragic. I mean, we we are so comfortable with sort of boobs hanging out all over the place, right, In, in media and in billboards and in posters, um, and in lingerie shops, and yet if a woman is, is actually just bearing a little bit of breast at a shopping mall because her baby is, is crying for food, um, you know, we ask her to leave. So I think, you know, I, I think it's important to kind of grow more comfortable with the idea of breastfeeding and to support it in public. I think one way to do that also is to um, encourage famous people and celebrities to breastfeed. And I, I loved it when Beyonce, day today, you know, breastfed in public. I think that sent um, a really powerful message, and I think that that can be helpful um, and supportive. And then, of course, there are social policies, too, that, that we don't have in this country that are common in many, many, many other countries. Um, longer, maternity, longer maternal leave policies, for example, um, longer family leave policies, more support for women who stay at home a little bit longer. Um, these have proven to be really effective for uh, increasing breastfeeding rates.
2: Great. Well, if people want to learn more about you and learn more about breasts and where to get a copy of breasts, um, where can people go?
4: Oh, thanks so much for asking. Uh, I do have a website. It's FlorenceWilliams.com and um, there are links to the book and and, uh, a video about the book and more descriptions there. And the paperback is available now. Um, It just came out last month. Uh, Really, bookstores everywhere. And there's also an audio version of the book and an electronic version of the book. So (laughs) lots of ways to read it.
3: So thanks so much again to Florence Williams for Really enlightening us about so many different
2: aspects of our breasts that maybe people don't really think about that often. Yeah, and I'll be curious to hear from, especially maybe moms out there who have considered what is in their breast milk both on that fascinating side of how nature seems to provide exactly the right compounds for whether it is a a male or female baby but then also the scarier side with those environmental contaminants as well um let us know your thoughts. And don't forget to check out Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History, published by W.W. Norton Company and written by Florence Williams. You can email us at momstuff@discovery.com or tweet us at momstuffpodcast or hit us up on our Facebook and leave a note there. This episode of Stuff Mom Never Told You is brought to you by HelloFresh.
1: So if you're ready to try some of the delicious food from HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash MomStuff80 and use code MomStuff80 to get a total of $80 off, including free shipping on your first box. That's HelloFresh.com slash MomStuff80
0: and use code MomStuff80 to get a total of $80 off and free shipping on your first box. Additional restrictions apply. Please visit HelloFresh.com for more details.
1: This episode is brought to you by Quip. When's the last time you got rewarded for brushing your teeth? With Quip's new Smart Electric Toothbrush, Good Habits can earn you great perks like free products, gift cards, and more.
0: The Quip Smart Brush for adults and kids connects to the Quip app with Bluetooth, so you can track when you're brushing, get tips, you can earn points, and you can redeem those points for rewards.
1: Already have a Quip? Start getting rewards for brushing your teeth today and go to getquip.com slash mom right now to get your first refill free. That is your first refill free at getquip.com slash mom, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash stuffmom. Quip, better oral health made simple and rewarding. And now, back to our letters. Kristen, and I have one here from Athena
3: about our pet parents episode. She has a slightly different experience from just the run-of-the-mill cats and dogs. Uh, she says, so I'm one of those who doesn't understand how crazy people get over their pets. That is, until about a month ago. My long-term boyfriend and I were adopted by an adorable bunny. I say adopted by because while at the shelter's bun run, where they let all of their bunnies out into a room where you can play with them, one bunny chinned us, marking us, and then chased off all other bunnies that wanted to come near us. That's a pretty territorial rabbit. Uh, my boyfriend has been hesitant about getting a pet, afraid of them dying, but her actions helped us decide then and there. So we brought our little flopster home and and quickly turned into crazy parents. Rabbits need all organic vegetables, and so we now only buy organic for us so that she can have our vegetables, too. We've built her cardboard castles and tunnels to play in, and now my boyfriend is talking about dressing her for Halloween. Can you tell that I'm just, like, overcome by the adorableness of this? Yeah, I kind of want a bunny. (laughs) Shoot. Okay, me too. Um, She says, while we one day, soon I hope, want a child, Flopster is a great friend to have, so while I cannot imagine ever pushing a pet in a stroller, I will not say never, since those big bunny eyes have already gotten me to do things I've said never to before. On a personal note, I would like to point out that bunnies are not great Easter presents for kids. Most of the bunnies in the shelter were Easter bunnies, rejected after the kids got tired of them. Bunnies will bond with their human owners, so this is heartbreaking for them to be rejected. Bunnies can die from heartbreak, she says. So thank you for your incredibly adorable story. I'm going to be happy the rest of the afternoon, picturing Flopster playing in your cardboard castle. And you know who
2: else has pet bunnies and loves them? Who? Amy Sedaris. Oh, yeah. Which is why I really want a bunny now. Okay, well, this email that I have is from Jeff, and he is not down with pet parenting. So, he just just for uh, background, he is married with a little girl, and he writes, Pet parenting is something that has pissed me off, since my sister referred to me as the uncle of her pet cats. I don't hate people loving their pets or even spoiling their pets. I hate the humanizing of animals. The fact that people would risk their lives or, as you pointed out, put the life of a pet over a human just sickens me. I should explain that I don't look down on people who choose not to have kids or can't have kids. Honestly, I think there are too many people in the world to sustain it. I didn't realize how prevalent the pet parenting trend was, though, until this past Mother's Day when my Facebook wall was flooded with, Happy Mother's Day to all parents of pets. So my response was a simple status update of Pets Aren't Children. And wow, did that blow up quickly. Friends were telling me about how they risked life and limb to protect their pets, and some of these people had actual children too. All I could think was, imagine your child losing their parent because Fluffy was going to be hit by a car. It seemed preposterous to me. But again, I don't find fault in pet ownership until they start to anthropomorphize their pets. We even own a cat who snuggles on my chest every night. I like the cat a great deal. We had two cats, but one ran away. And while I didn't cry or get upset about it, I was sad because it wasn't adjusted to the outside. Anyway, those are my thoughts as an anti-pet parenting Person, And there were a couple of other people who wrote in similarly saying, uh-uh, I don't get it. Pets are not people. Take off that tiny, tiny shirt that is on that dog ASAP. So, thanks Jeff and everyone else who has written in momstuffdiscovery.com is where you can send your letters and pictures of your pets, especially if they are bunnies. And you can also tweet us at Podcast. find us on Facebook, and follow us on Tumblr at stuffmomnevertoldyou.tumblr.com And of course you can also find us and watch us on YouTube, we're at YouTube.com slash Stuff Mom Never Told You. We have like 60 or something videos up, so you should go watch them. And don't forget to subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Dear Young Rocker Season 2 is a raw, honest, strange, and entertaining story about finding yourself in your early 20s and a lifelong relationship with music. It's hosted by me, Chelsea Erson, and is executive produced by Jake Brennan of Disgraceland. Dear Young Rocker comes to you from Double Elvis Productions and iHeartRadio. Listen to Dear Young Rocker on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts,
3: or wherever you get your podcasts.